0: I am thrilled with today's guest. Uh, I, I've been a big fan of his for years. We were just talking online that, interesting enough, we've never met. We had a lot of mutual friends. Fareed Zakaria is kind of a legend in the, in the world of... Um broadcasting in the world of uh, kind of foreign policy. He's, of course, a Washington Post columnist. He's a host of CNN's GPS Sundays. Uh, he's a Peabody Award winner. He's an Emmy Award winner. He's written uh, five New York Times bestselling books, the most recent one, 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World. Um, he is a, a man of our times. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate it.
1: It's a huge pleasure, Donnie.
0: So first of all, I want to talk a little bit about growing. what I loved in just doing a little research on you, you growing up in then Bombay, where you were a huge I Love Lucy fan. That's pretty much the only TV show you got growing up on Sunday nights. And that kind of was your introduction to real Western culture here. Talk to me about growing up and watching I Love Lucy.
1: Well, you know, it's a reminder, I think, Donnie, of how different the world was and how much it's changed. Like we think about globalization and all that what we forget is it was it's also been a globalization of information and things like that. So I grew up in India in the '60s and '70s, and this was a time when India had high tariff barriers. You know, you couldn't get a lot of foreign goods. The only things you could get easily were Coca-Cola and pharmaceutical drugs, as 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 I remember it. Uh, and they banned Coke for a while, but you know, out of a kind of nationalism. So TV comes to India when I'm about ten years old, 1974. Uh, one channel, black and white. And most of the time, the it was the most boring, soul-deadening, destroying documentaries on the glories of Indian agriculture. <laughs> Why? Must see TV, right? Must see TV, be, right? Because most voters in India were still living in rural India. So, of course, it was all pandering to them. Um, some things never change. And what we do is so every Sunday, they would do one Bollywood movie. Uh, And 6 p.m., I still remember. And everyone literally around the country would gather, Uh, you know, even in villages, like 50 people would gather in front of one little TV set to see the thing. And before that, they would show the one piece of imported entertainment that India in those days could uh, could, could, uh, afford. And that was the I Love Lucy show. Now, this is in the mid-70s, and I'm not talking about the Here's Lucy show. That is the yes. colored TV the 70s black version. black and white Ricky Ricardo, this, right. All right. Exactly. This is the original I Love Lucy. Uh, but, of course, we all loved it. And, you know, we kind of vaguely knew that this was not what America was like at the time. But then you begin to see how technology brings the world closer. So what happens is the next big revolution is the videotape revolution. So I go from watching I Love Lucy to suddenly getting uh, pirated DVD, uh, uh, VCR copies. In those days, Be- Betamax, uh, Sony Betamax off the, the, the top shows at the time, which were Dallas and Dynasty and things like that. And I remember very much like my image of America was uh, Dallas. Yeah. Is you know shiny glass skyscrapers yeah. with helicopters with people taking you know uh, uh, men in ten gallon hats and the big cars and the beautiful women. Uh, Victoria Principal, oh loved her,
0: loved her, loved her, definitely.
1: Oh, a yeah, part of my American dream. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but 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 and, and then you get satellite TV and then you get CNN and then you get you know. So it, it's a process by which you suddenly start the whole world starts to get to know each other, which is something that happened in my lifetime.
0: You uh, were very, uh, grew up kind of around the media, your mom, who we'll talk about, who I know you you lost recently uh, uh, post-COVID, uh, and I know what an influence she was in her life. She was the Sunday Times editor for India, is that correct?
1: Yeah. So the Times of India is sort of the rough equivalent in India of the New York Times. And she was the Sunday editor. She was the first woman to to have a position like that, a kind of senior position in a mainstream Indian journalism uh, role. There were obviously women's magazines that that had editors. Um, And I grew up with my dad was a politician, uh, kind of a you know the closest I can I can describe him which you you'll get uh, is a, a Daniel Patrick Moynihan figure. Okay, wow. Uh, right. It was a, you know, and the reason I say that is uh, Moynihan. You know this, but I'm saying this for others who don't. Moynihan was a senator, but he was also a Harvard uh, a professor. He had written a whole bunch of books. My dad was a PhD. He had written a lot of books, but he was also a politician. So. You can imagine the dinner table conversation at, at my house. And my parents were very good about like letting us in as kids. Yeah. So we would sit at the dinner table and my mom would say, what should be on the cover of uh, of the of the magazine this week? Or what should be with the big story? We And we would chime in. We would, you know, my, my brother and I at the time were just, you know, allowed to reign free, talk about whatever it was we wanted. And we would constantly be telling my mom she was doing the wrong thing. I still remember right. that. Um, it was it was great fun. It was it was my parents allowed us to participate in their lives in a way that uh, that, uh, you know, made me very comfortable in the world of grown ups at a very early age.
0: Yeah. Uh, I get you must miss your mom terribly. I know she was kind of the, the number one influence in your life. And it, talk to me about what what happened during COVID.
1: So uh, my mom was 85 uh, in uh uh, 21 at uh, 2021, and she had a little bit of a heart condition. She had diabetes, but she was basically quite healthy. She also had early uh, onset dementia by then, um, so it was a it was a difficult uh, period. A- and then COVID happens, and it became harder and harder to communicate with her and things like that. And you know, it's one of these things you I, I know I shouldn't. Say, say this, but I at some level will never forgive myself, because I tried to get her vaccinated. But the doctor came to, to the, her house. And she was at that point, again, early onset dementia, she was unwilling, she oh, said, dirt. you know, basically threw, threw him out. And in India, being a, you know, liberal democracy, the doctor can't, in, can't give you a vaccination without your consent. Yeah. Unless a court has ruled that you are in- in- incompetent, which a court had not ruled in my mother's case, and two weeks later she gets COVID, and with those pre-existing conditions yeah. I described and without a vaccine, she only lasted five days. Um, oh, I'm sorry. And and you know the, the the only thing is she she's 85. She lived a good life. Yeah. Um, so I you know and I feel uh, okay. I just took my kids and we all went and saw the grave and everything. But look, you know, Warren Buffett once said the most powerful force in the world is uh, the power of uh, unqualified love. And I really think that's true. You know, to have somebody in your life, yes, she was a great journalist and she was, but the real thing is, you know, I think, and many of us have, have been fortunate in this, to have somebody who you just know is always there for you. Yeah. You know, like uh, something simple, like on my birthday, I knew that no matter where I was in the world, no matter what was going on in my life, I was gonna get a call my time by 8 a.m. Uh, you know, she would have tracked down if I was in Russia, if I was in the Middle East, she would have figured out the time difference and she and you know, just that feeling that somebody has your back. And yeah, I had somebody, that with my
0: dad. I lost my dad at eighty-four, same thing. And I feel him yeah. ten times a day every day still. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's,
1: and, it's, and it's, that's that's that just that feeling and that not having that, you must feel this like the, the, There's that weird feeling of being a little bit alone for the first time and without that safety net.
0: Yes, but what I have found, though, I I I don't know if you'll feel this because you're you're it's it's a little more raw for you than me because it's been about ten years for my dad. I find him very present in my life and very. I find I'm I'm thinking he has more of an effect on me, even though I don't tactically get to talk to, tactilely get to talk to him or feel. But I kind of his lessons, his presence. In some ways, stays with me more than when he was alive, because as and I guess that's the essence of things, and that's the essence of as we go from generation to generation.
1: Yeah, you know, you're right. It's a little raw for me for now. You know, the thing that I notice is, I, I I kind of miss things, and again, partly because of the the dementia, this had gone away. But yeah. I miss the the the. You know, she had this great sense of humor and these very funny jokes, and she was always teasing and. Like, you know, I, re- I remember those little things, those personality quirks that, in a sense, made her who she was. And I remember them as such an integral part of my life growing up. And I, I keep missing those little things. And in, in odd moments, you know, I'll hear somebody laugh. I'll hear somebody tell a joke. And it reminds me of my mother. Yeah. Um, or I'll see, I'll be talking to my youngest daughter who's 14 now. Oh, you're in the twilight, re- you're in the
0: twilight zone age, huh? 14 year old daughter. <laughs> right. I got a 16 year right. old.
1: You're right. I'm at 24, uh, 19 and 14. Oh, wow, so, you're right in it. You're right. Yeah, in it, yeah. and, and you're right. I believe me. you know, 14 year old girls. Yeah. Um, but, but I, I, am I find myself wishing she had known my mother better. I yeah. don't know if you had that I have same exact thing with my daughter. Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, she yeah. she lost. I think my dad. She was maybe five or something. So yeah. I, I hear. Hey, let's just, just jump right into some current event stuff. Um, Blinken was supposed to go to China to meet with Xi, and uh, that's been supposedly postponed because of a supposed uh, spy balloon over Montana somewhere. Or so, what's your take on what's going on there?
1: I think it's kind of crazy, honestly. First of all, of course the Chinese have spy balloons. Uh, They also have spy satellites, which can do much more than spy balloons. Um, And by the way, so do we. We have, you know, whatever the Chinese have, we have 10 times as much. We are the world's best at, you know, what do you think the National Security Agency does with its tens of billions of dollars of budget? So I think that there's something fundamentally we haven't come to grips with, which is, China is the second largest economy in the world. It's the second richest country in the world. It's one point four billion people. Do we think they're not going to have a spy agency? <laughs> right. Do we think they're not going to have spy satellites? And if if we, they do, do you think they like somehow they're going to say, "Oh, we're not going to we're not going to spy on the Americans, yeah. though the Americans spy on us." Sure. So so like, there's some weird. I feel as though we have not really come to grips with the fact that we're living in a world with another superpower that. You know, I mean, I, 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 he canceled his trip. The, the meeting with Chinese officials is not a gift we're giving China for their good behavior. Right, right. We are meeting with Chinese officials to secure America's interests and its security in a world in which there are other great powers. So I feel like we're completely going around. Well, in general, I think Biden's foreign policy has been very good, and particularly on Russia, Ukraine, uh, and he's brought the world and allies together. But on this issue. I honestly think what you're seeing is this is one of those cases where the Democrats run scared uh, on foreign policy because of what Republicans will say about them. You know, if you think about whenever Democratic foreign policy goes awry, think of Vietnam, think of the Iraq war. It's when. They're doing things they don't actually believe
0: in, but, but they don't want to seem soft. They don't want to seem. They don't soft, want no. to
1: seem soft, and yeah. you know, and this is seems to me a foreign policy design not around China, but around Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz.
0: You've said in in certain I don't want to use the exact words, but like we should not this bugaboo of China and how afraid we are of them that, that, that somehow that's gotten misguided a bit.
1: Totally. I mean, we've got to right size the Chinese uh, thing. Look, there, it's a serious competitor. It is the other big, uh, great power in the world right now. And that's a new thing for us. Like we, We're used to countries like Germany and Japan becoming rich that are treaty allies of the United States that depend on us for their security. Like China's not that. China is a real you know, outside of the system great power, but it's not 25 feet tall. Um, they're not going to take over the world uh you know they have lots of problems they've got a dem- demographic time bomb that is basically yes. exploding right now they they've doubled down under, under Xi on the under on state led economic growth we we all know how well that is done in the past yeah. Uh, there's, you know, some. It reminds me a little bit, and you remember this uh, in your adver- advertising. This, people were so scared of Japan taking yes, over yes, the world, yes. and you know everybody was like the samurai. In the er- this in the and... early '80s, yeah,
0: uh, I mean, exactly.
1: You know, yeah. And you know, guess what? Nothing lasts forever. They had a good run for a while, then they settle into a lot of the problems they have. China will be something like that. So it's not that it's, you know, it's not gonna collapse, it's not gonna disappear, but we really need to, whenever we go into a paranoid mode and we think somebody is kind sort of taking over the world, the Soviet Union, you know, Saddam is going to weapons of mass destruction, he's gonna dominate the Middle East. We we always get spooked and then we act irrationally. And I just would like us to be right-sizing this threat and recognizing our own strengths and our own, you know, having confidence in our long-term capacity. And then we can find a way to manage the world, you know, to manage life with another great power in the system.
0: You, speaking of that, you've kind of, you wrote a column post Davos about you're a lot more optimistic than what a lot of the naysayers in the world are about where we are right now. Kind of make me me feel good. Talk to me about some of that optimism.
1: So first, let's look at the United States. I mean, today we got the jobs numbers out. Okay. US economy continues. It's kind of almost bizarre how, you know, how strong the American economy is, you have unemployment. So the, the unemployment number today is the lowest number since I think 1989 18. or yeah. something like that. You know, so we have we have the strongest unemployment in 40 or 50 years. We inflation is coming down. It's, you know, it's a a bit of a struggle, but it's it's, it's going
0: in the right direction. Yeah.
1: It's going in the right direction. We still have the best technology companies in the world by far. If you look at where the big breakthroughs are taking place, AI, who's doing it? It turns out you know our own companies, GBT and and uh, by the way, Google has even better stuff that they That's, haven't released it's coming yet. Coming out, yes, yes, right. Um, if you look at nuclear fusion, where is it happening? Lawrence Livermore Labs. If you look at biotech, you know it's. Um, you look at by the way a little th- thing that people don't don't think about. Our banks now totally dominate the world. Even though the financial crisis happened and it was because of our banks, we got we cleaned up. Um, you know this is the great thing about America. We take pain we we let the bad stuff go, go go down we you know we revamp and then we bounce back that's what's happened with our banks which are now which dominate the world more than they've ever done before we are demographically strong most uh, rich countries are basically you know you look at a country like italy it's basically going to look like Florida and it already looks like Florida. I don't yeah. mean, by the way, aesthetically, yeah. the Italians yeah. would be horrified by that prospect. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the demographic profile of yeah. Italy is basically a retirement state and yeah. that's happening all over Europe. Meanwhile, because of immigration, we're demo- demographically strong. We continue to, you know, a little bit slower than we should, but we still continue to grow. So I look at all that and I think, you know, yeah, there are problems, but I mean, look at if you had a a, 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 a Hand of cards to play. Yeah, you'd want America's hand. There's no other country in the world that you'd want uh, as much as America. And by and large, you know, the Euro- Europe and the United States are allied better and and united more than they've ever been before. Uh, you know, yes, we face this terrible challenge with Russia's and, uh, aggression, but the Russians are paying a real price. The Ukrainians are doing extraordinarily well. Uh, you know people are always looking at the glass half empty and i'm yeah. thinking to myself like and meanwhile all the trends that we've all noticed over the last 30 or 40 years life expectancy is going up you know i mean there are places where it isn't mm-hmm. appalachia you know we we have problems but on the whole people are getting more educated healthier living longer so I, I, I tend to, you know, part of it is I'm an immigrant. I came here, you know, you, one has that optimistic, positive attitude if you're an immigrant, but I've retained it.
0: You mentioned ChatGBT. Uh, uh, it's staggering what it can do. I mean, it just for those of those who don't know, it's, it's AI and you can go and give it a math, uh, it can get you into medical school, you just fill mm-hmm. out. I mean, it's just, it's just it's truly brains for the first time coming upon us. Technology has kind of always an underbelly to it. Do you worry at all about the displacement of what I'll just call human know-how or if our kids are at the point where they can, they don't have to write a paper, they can just type in, okay, write a paper on the Cuban Missile Crisis and here it comes. Where is the, where's the dark side here? Because I just, I, I'm a technology fear guy. I always look at it, or the obviously is pushing us forward and we have to walk into it, but this one worries me. Am I, Am I ill-founded there?
1: No, this is the big, this is the big, sh- this is the big one. This is the big shift uh, that's taking place. Uh, and as you say, it's for the first time, it's real brains until now to give people a sense of the the, the the difference until now, even artificial intelligence, what we meant by artificial intelligence was basically kind of mass correlation. So let me explain looking at Google Translate. When you, tra- when you ask Google Translate to translate something, it will basically just look in the past and try to figure out, so if I were to say, how do you say, uh, my name is Farid in French, it will go back and look at all the times that they can find translation, you know, something said in English that was translated in French and say, oh, I, I guess it's Je m'appelle Farid, because they always seem to say that. Right. So it doesn't know what it's doing, it's just finding sure. those things. So by the way, that's why the Google Translate worked best between French and English because there was the most number of simultaneously translated documents, which, by by the way, mostly came from the Canadian parliament, which has been translating simultaneously since 1867. So that's why Google Translate works fantastically French to English, English to French. Now what they're doing is the AI actually learns the language. So the AI can translate from an obscure Indian language, uh, Into German, even though there are very few documents uh, of that, because it's figured out the structure of the language, the grammar. So that's the shift that's taking place. And, of you know, it's, it's hugely, I I wouldn't say worrying, but it's, this is a big, big challenge. So at one level, look, it will make a lot of routine work uh stuff that the machine can do and we don't have to do which is great uh lawyers can use it to find you know what they call discovery in law which is basically Mm -hmm. just finding a bunch of phrases cases patterns all that the ai will do much better than we can do even something like animation in your world ai is going to do much better than we can do you know because it's a lot of repetition Um, whether it will be able to genuinely come up with a new solution to a problem we're not still sure but The the trajectory seems like it will. And at that point, what I worry about is this. Look, ever since the Enlightenment, we have believed in human reason as the way to unlock the mysteries of the world, right? Like we used to see the sun going up, and we'd say, oh, that's the sun god. And then we said, no, 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 we understand what's happening. Before that, what people would do is anything they didn't understand was religion. So now we're coming to the point where artificial intelligence is becoming the same kind of black box because we don't understand how the computer comes up with the answer it comes up with. So we would feed in all this medical data about ourselves to the to the uh, computer. And the computer would say, these are the things you need to do. And we wouldn't know why it was saying that because it's processing at a, at a speed that is millions of times faster than we can process our you know, brains. Yes, But we would know it was right. And so we are back in a world where we used to worship God. Now we're worshiping the black box, by which I mean we are recognizing that it has the right answer without having any idea why. So that is a weird post-enlightenment, post-rational world for human beings to inhabit, where we become subordinate to some kind of higher entity that is able to solve the mysteries of the world that we can't. It's a big, it's a big, big deal.
0: Let, let's shift to domestic politics a little bit. You wrote, wrote a column, and uh, yeah, I think most people agree with you. The Republican Party needs to purge Donald Trump. Uh, that doesn't seem to be happening. How do the Republicans ever? I, I mean, they are. So they've fallen down and they can't get up and they the problem they have is they're stuck with this guy. He controls 30 percent of the the base give or take a few percentage points. Uh, if they don't give him the nomination, he'll probably run as an independent and get handed to the Democrats. So what are the wh- how, how do they get out of the way themselves at this point? They really are a prisoner to this to this madman.
1: Yeah, so first I think we have to understand why why he has this hold. And I think the best place to look is not the 2016 elections, but the 2016 primaries. The 2016 election was a fluke, 70,000 votes in three states and would have gone different. But the primary was not. He was up against 16 very talented Republicans, governors, senators, the former CEO of Hewlett Packard, and he wiped the floor with them. Mm -hmm. And the reason was he understood you know, subliminally, I don't think he, he he's, he's sort of and he has an intuitive. There's a prime um,
0: primal instinct there. Yes, absolutely. exactly, and yes. a
1: very and a very good salesman. He's a bad businessman, but he's a very best. good salesman. The best. right? He gets he gets where what's going on. He, I think, he would go into those those town halls, those meetings, and he would sense what was going on. He, plays going the room, was, listens to the room. Yeah, exactly. That the Republican Party had completely shifted from the the Reagan era coalition. Uh, which was small government people, you know, uh, pro-democracy uh, uh, around the world, uh, cu- cut Social Security, cut Medicare, the Paul Ryan Republican Party. Mm-hmm. He realized that, that there was nobody who supported that. What the Republican Party had become was a an somewhat angry, resentful, yeah. white working class. Party of grievance, that, yeah. yeah. Right, that was the base. And what, you know, if you think about what was his, when you do those meetings, his basic message was, the Chinese are taking your factories, the Mexicans are taking your jobs, mm-hmm. the Muslims are trying to kill you. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna beat them all up, you'll be great again.
0: I, I always right? said it all it came back to, to white creep, it came back to just right. we are becoming less white and boy they're taking everything away from you and I'm gonna protect you. The most simplistic exactly. terms absolutely yes. And and
1: as a result, he has a hold because they rightly believe that he saw them when nobody else did. And he, you know, he speaks to them in a way that nobody else does. So there's a real, it's not just that he's a colorful personality. or No, the no, no. It it's that, that
0: very raw nerve, that very powerful right. raw nerve. Right. Yes.
1: So how does one get around? I first of all agree exactly with what you said. He's got 30% of the base locked. Now that what that means is all these polls are, are frankly wrong when they say uh, Rubio beats Trump and all, because it's never going to be mano a mano. Of course not. It's
0: it's, right? against the, well, it's the same thing's going to happen this time around also. You're going to exactly. have this. Everybody's exactly. talking about DeSantis. You've got Nikki Haley, you've got DeSantis, exactly. you have Ted Cruz. Exactly. The same thing, and it's me versus everybody else, and he wins. Right. So all
1: of them will run. They'll all get 5 to 7, 8, 9, 10%. He's going to get 25 to 30. And as you know, Republican primaries tend to be it's winner true. take most, not winner take all, but yes. if you win... But 30% of the vote, you get 60% of the delegates. So he's going to rack up the delegates as he goes along. But by the way, Donnie, this may be the best case scenario, because what happens then is he is too strong not to get the Republican nomination. But he's too weak to win.
0: Well, I keep so, saying to say, Let's keep him around. I, I mean, he's—he's—you're exa- exactly right, and he is their prisoner to him because he can't win anymore. The numbers don't add up for him. He's just not an electable candidate in a general election, uh, particularly post January sixth. And he's—he's he's the worst nightmare for the Republicans. That—that's the whole point.
1: And and what we really need to do to get past this this kind of crazy. You know, as you put it, politics of white grievance and cultural nationalism, is it needs to be defeated at the polls. I think it's a terrible idea to for our for the strategy to be that Donald Trump gets indicted or gets gets mm-hmm. prosecuted. That's just a bunch of fancy lawyers and judges taking the guy off the field, which is how exactly how it's going to seem to all his supporters. You're 100 percent right. But if he goes up against the American people and he's voted down and decisively, I think that bra- But that hasn't break happened. Well,
0: I thought that was going to happen. He's lost basically five of the last six elections. That's <laughs> that's what's so stunning. I always said, okay, they have to lose. They have to go through a few cycles. And there it is. It's not happening. Not happening.
1: But but many of them were not him, right? So, yeah. so it's only 2020 uh, 20, uh, is the only one where he lost. The other yeah. ones are, you can, you can say he yes, was yes, on the ballot. Right, so right. I think if he goes up against... I'm guessing Biden again or any Democrat, and he loses by this time 10 million votes, which is the most likely scenario, maybe even more, uh, because as you said, post-January 6th, you've really seen a drop off. Yeah. then I think we may get past this, and that frankly might be the best for the Republicans as well, because they then need, they can they can distance
0: they, themselves. They're stuck with him. How do you grade Biden at this point? You know, for some reason, I Biden, where I sit, has done a really good workmanlike job, and I think because he seems old to people, and he doesn't, he's just not getting some of the credit he deserves. Uh, I'm I'm, I'm, cu- I'm curious, your grade of Biden after after a couple of years.
1: So you know I think you're exactly right about the optics and the demeanor and he's an old guy and but look at the simple facts Joe Biden has passed more important legislation Amen. than any president since Lyndon Johnson that's 50 years ago right and and, and the truth is the inflation reduction act the bill back better all this stuff is going to be very powerful investments in the in in the american economy some of it will work some of it won't work but we've just been so uh, starved of investment in this economy for the last th- for 30 or 40 years. What we have done is basically give tax cuts mostly to the rich, mm-hmm. which have fueled a lot of consumption. they fuel a lot of big houses and they've fueled, you know, yachts and this and that. But they haven't really invested in the base of the economy. So for that reason alone, I think he deserves, you know, an A. Uh, There is other stuff, you know, he's rallied the allies together, as I said, on on Russia really well. But I think just stay stay with the most important thing, which is the base of the American economy, infrastructure, science, uh, you know, technology, uh, worker retraining, all that is getting more funding than it has in 50 years. And that is a big deal. And I think it will see some real long term benefits from it.
0: You mentioned, Rush, you, you, you talk so much about Ukraine and what's going on. Handicap where that plays out, because everybody keeps saying we don't see an off-ramp, we don't see an off-ramp. So play this out. I, I know you don't like to prognosticate necessarily, but where, where how, how does this end? Uh,
1: look, I mean, obviously nobody knows, but here's the thing I, I will say. If you were to have to choose right now which side you'd rather be on, the the United States has allied, has, has gotten not just the whole of Western Europe, the whole of Europe, countries like Singapore, China, Japan, Australia, all on board. There's some countries in Africa, not enough uh, of the global south. But you have a very strong alliance because I think they realize that Russia is trying to tear up the rules-based international system. Mm-hmm. It's really trying to tear up the, yes. the kind of liberal international order that the U.S. has, has constructed since 1945. And the pressure is on. Russia is largely isolated. And the Ukrainians are fighting amazingly well. And they now have increasingly the best equipped battle ready army in Europe that the Russians are fighting. So that's a pretty strong situation. The Ukrainians have a 700,000 people under arms. They've got another couple million that are willing to fight. And these guys are willing to fight like I've never seen. Yeah, that's fighting for uh, their lives. Right? Yeah, they're, yeah, they're, and
0: when you, when you put country, cause right? into something, Yes.
1: Right, and the Russians are fighting. You know, they don't know what they're fighting for. The last mobilization uh, of three hundred thousand men triggered five hundred thousand Russians, able-bodied Russians, to leave the country yeah. rather than get drafted. So I, I feel like it's you know we're in a good place. We have the pressure on, but the Russian—it's a big country. They can throw bodies at this problem. Um, it can you know it can drag on for a long time. Uh, we've got to be ready for that. My own view would be, if we want Ukraine to win, let's make, let's give it everything it can so it can win fast. Yeah. Because the faster it wins, the faster we get through this, the faster the horrible war crimes that are taking place end, the horrible devastation of civilian life in Ukraine ends. And by the way, we can get to a place where there is some peace negotiation and something. But for all of that, you need Ukraine to win. And so why not give it the weapons that will allow it to win
0: fast? You've interviewed Putin and a lot of people who've sat with Putin describe his eyes, and that they look back and that there's there's nothing there. There's evil, pure evil. Uh, I'm curious your visceral reaction to sitting down with Putin.
1: I, I, do, I have to confess, I find that some of those uh, reactions are a little bit uh, overly dramatized. Right. He comes across, frankly, as a slightly, he's short. Uh, I say this as a short person. Right. He's a little, little uh, uh, um, you know, I wouldn't call him stocky, but he's a little... You know, he's not hes not right. very elegant looking. He's balding, beady eyes. Looks a little bit like an accountant in some, right. some ways. Right. Um, w- what he is, is he's a thug. Uh, he's a very intelligent thug. Uh, the first time I met him, I give you a sense, it was a Davos, um, I think 2007, seven, eight. Um, he, he comes, there was a small group of journalists he met with off the record. He, he had, They had handpicked, it was like six of us. Um, he comes one and a half hours late, which never happens at Davos because everything is sure. super yeah. tightly scheduled. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a little bit of that machismo of, of showing yeah, yeah, off yeah, yeah. and yeah. putting you at... Um, first. The, the room first is cleared by a bunch of um, FSB, his security yeah. service thugs, uh, very thuggish-looking Russians. Then he comes in. And I, I remember the the editor of Forbes uh, Russia was, was one of the people there. And they had written a bunch of uh, articles critical. In those days, you could still do that in Russia. And he starts mercilessly teasing him and putting him on the defensive. And like he was wearing one of those American football rings, you know, Mm -hmm. those college rings. And he starts uh, asking him, why do you wear a a ring that has like a a jewel in it? You know, it seems very effeminate. Like he's trying all these little Uh, tactics of psychological, Yeah, putting the guy on the defensive. Then he launches into a diatribe against the West, which is... Amazingly intelligent, very well historically informed. All the things that you know the United States did when Russia was on its knees, we bombed Kosovo, we did, you know, without getting UN approval. He goes through, you know, a litany of things, all of which he knows by heart. He, you know, he is very, as I say, very intelligent, mm-hmm. very well briefed, mm-hmm. but like deep Russian nationalism. You got the feeling that he felt that you know like he was going to single handedly He was going to write the wrongs. Yes,
0: yes. Yeah.
1: And that set of a sense of mission. And so I, I've always remembered that first meeting because I think he really thinks of himself as like the, Rus- the the czar who's going to bring Russia back, who's going to bring back the sense of Russian glory. And, 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 he, and in that sense, Ukraine is always at the center of it because Russia's, sure. there is no Russian empire. There's no Russian greatness in his mind without Ukraine being a part of
0: it. Mm-hmm. You know, to put a group together that are clearly, you can't group them, but, you know, you've interviewed, you know, Macron and Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and Netanyahu, Putin. Is there any thread you see, obviously disparate people with different moral compasses, but has there been any thread you've seen in people of power when you sit down with them afterwards You go, okay, here's the people who end up in these positions. Here's the thread. Here's kind of the commonality for people who are so uncommon in so many other ways other than their power seats that they sit in?
1: Very driven. Very, I mean, there's a huge ego in all of them. There's um, just a, a kind of relentless drive um, and a willingness to sacrifice um, kind of everything else, by which I mean not not other people, but their own p- yeah. private lives, for yes. example. People who, who are in political life, and this is what's different about business. People in business are plenty driven. there's a certain kind of drive that people have in in politics, which is I will, because politics is a 24 seven business. I saw this, my, my dad was a politician. Um, You are sacrificing your personal life for your public life. And either you're doing that out of an act of a great sense of national responsibility, or you're doing it out of a sense of deep egotism. But for whatever reason you have that, there's a single minded drive that says I am willing to sacrifice everything for this.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Final question. You know, this prom, the premise of my podcast is that kind of everybody today is a brand. Everything is a brand, every institution, every religion, every athlete, every. So what's the what's the free brand?
1: <laughs> um, I, you'd have to I'd have to hire you to be able to get that <laughs> to get that figured out. And I don't know that I could afford you. I, I would say that, you know, look. what my purpose has been uh, is to try to help Americans understand the world better to understand that it's a big complicated world out there, that we can navigate it uh, if we understand it, to have some sense of empathy and understanding for for them, and to get smarter. I, you know, I really do believe in a democracy, Jefferson's line, that you, know, you need an educated citizenry to make democracy work. And I think that what I've always tried, I've always remembered that for me, journalism is fundamentally public education. It's not about uh, you know there are some people in the, who just they're they're in the the glam and the I, I don't think of myself as in the the heating business. I think of myself as in the lighting business. I'm trying to turn the the lights on and to give you a sense of what's going on and make you smarter and make you more aware. Uh, I don't always succeed, but that's definitely my aspiration.
0: I actually think you have a great handle on your brand. It's been a privilege to sit with you, my friend. Thank you, Freed. I appreciate it. Freed a one of the smartest guys in the room, whatever room he's in. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Donnie. It was a, such a pleasure to do this with you.